Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is the other thing I do. My guest this week is Vincenzo Natale, a writer and director whose feature films include Cube, Cypher, Nothing, Splice, and Haunter, and whose television work ranges from Orphan Black, Westworld, and The Strain, to Luke Cage, American Gods, and the best episodes of Brian Fuller's Hannibal. He's also an old friend. We first met about 30 years ago when I was at York University studying film with Vince's high school friend and future Cube screenwriter, Andre Bajalik. And now, every time we run into each other professionally, it's a little weird. So it was really nice to just sit down and talk about a movie like we used to. Vince picked Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's era-defining 1982 sci-fi film noir, which stands as one of the most influential projects of its day. 35 years ago, though, it was seen as a weird, frustrating Harrison Ford detective thriller with robots, brutality, and admittedly astonishing set design. And it confused critics, alienated audiences, and took years to find its proper status, rolling through a series of competing director's cuts until the release of the definitive edition in 2007, and now returning to the conversation with the advent of Denis Villeneuve's Blade Runner 2049. So, what better time to release this episode? Just for a little context, we recorded this back in June, and for some reason there was a lot of helicopter traffic in the neighborhood that day. It kind of works for the overall dystopian feel. You'll see. This is someone else's movie. Because we're anticipating the sequel, that's kind of a nice time mm-hmm. to talk. Um, but no, no, I just, I don't know what it, why that was the first thing that sprung to mind. Maybe because I was another podcast I wanted to do it and someone else <laughs> got it but it's a oh also it's easy for me because it's a film I have fairly extensive knowledge of right um, but it, it always amazes me especially having worked in that realm a bit and it just that movie does not age <laughs> it's funny it used to be that if you made a period piece in the past set some set something in the past and it, it's timeless it it doesn't look, except for maybe some of the 60s war movies that look like they were shot in 1964. Right. Usually if you try to make a future, it doesn't work because you'll find something that will date itself. I mean, just like old Star Trek right. versus new Star Trek, even not just the 60s series, but the 80s movies sure. where everything is limited by what they had available. And yeah, I, there are two films, Blade Runner and Minority Report, where it feels like it's coming right. instead of invented. Well, I, one of the strokes of genius in Blade Runner is that Ridley Scott or somebody realized that fashion is cyclical. Mm-hmm. So by re- resurrecting 1940s style fashion, that, that was a very natural thing for the way society and culture evolves. And, and then he's totally right. Yeah. <laughs> and it just has a grit to it. Like I, I was watching it again and I just, and then it's also because it preceded digital effects work. And so everything's done for real and done so well because Douglas Trumbull did all the visual effects. Um, but it just has a, 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 a tactile quality to it that very few science fiction films have, and a, and a believable one. Like, the, fu- the future will be as dirty as it is now. It's not going to be a clean place. And yeah. So I think for all those reasons, it just it feels very correct. Um, and not that it needs to be correct, but it just it doesn't... I mean, it's a kind of a curse, because anyone trying to make a science fiction film now has that movie to compete with like that's the the high watermark for great science fiction visual design and i don't really think anyone's ever 
surpassed it. And yeah. that's, how old is it now? 1982, that's... 82, it's... 30, uh, 36 uh, years old. 36 yeah. years. Yeah, I don't like thinking about these things. <laughs> what, what, really, uh, what really strikes me about the design is that it all somehow still services the noir aspect of it. The mm. story, the neo-noir, where it's actually neon noir. Mm. There's a, a look, there's a, a loneliness to mm. the way everything is framed. It's one of the movies... I'm constantly in conflict with because it's not a, it's not perfect in the way that people want it to be, mm. but it is perfect in other ways. Mm. Like it, it, the story is slow. Mm. The pacing is sluggish. Uh, Scott is way too interested in fans. <laughs> like it just, it's a motif that it just keeps coming back. Right. And it's a little bit too much in love with its own design, but at the same time, we are marveling at it. So I don't right. mind having the time in the frame to just gawk at things and, and stare at the constructions but the themes are amazing and the mm-hmm. performances are way better than people give them credit for oh yeah and I mean I remember seeing it initially and then again in 92 when it came back in um, in the theatrical in the, the final cut which mm. wasn't the final cut because Ridley Scott won't stop recutting it or wouldn't for a while <laughs> I was constantly given the opportunity to see it again in a theater properly in an age where all you had was VHS and Laserdisc and you just do not get the visual impact of this film on a television. I mean, you can now. We finally caught up to it. But it's the sort of experience that you really, just as we were talking earlier about um, Netflix versus theatrical, Mm. you need to be locked in the dark with this film to really sink into it. Otherwise, you're just staring at pictures waiting for something to happen. Yeah. No, I think it's kind of a VR experience. Like, I feel Mm. that, like, there's a few movies of that time. The Shining is one for me. Apocalypse Now is another where I don't, narratively, I think you could say they're imperfect or they're things that are flawed about them. But it almost doesn't matter because those movies so completely transport you to those places that you really feel like they exist beyond the borders of the frame. Yeah, yeah. And and Blade Runner is definitely one of them. So they're almost and I don't mind that. Like in a way in a way I'm almost gl- glad there isn't too much narrative. I know that people criticize Blade Runner because it's supposed to be a detective story and there's really not much detecting yeah. going on. Yeah, I remember someone complaining about Deckard constantly just getting beaten up instead of asking questions. Right. And he just gets punched before he's right. doing But that actually works. That's, you know, the Maltese Falcon is not about a guy who knows what's going on. It's no, about that's a good point. stumbling into the truth. That's true. And and Harrison Ford takes a punch really, really well. Yeah. yeah. There's that... <laughs> he just does. He's really... I mean, it's a very funny film in an odd way it points to. In odd... In very strange ways. <laughs> but I, there's that moment when he at the very end, you know, where he's holding onto that girder and he lets go and he just spits out something yeah. from his mouth. <laughs> like, he's really good at that kind of visceral uh, performance. But, um... Uh, I derailed you, though, you were saying. I have no idea what I was saying. <clears throat> oh, that, um... That in some ways, had it been overly um, interested in the mystery, like, if it were a little more like Chinatown, I'm not sure that... First of all, I'm not just sure the film could contain that because there's so much going on conceptually and thematically and visually that if if it became too watered down with plot details and twists and turns, um, I'm not sure I would like that movie. Personally, I'm not sure I would like that movie as much. Yeah. And there's just something, the languid pace of it, and also the t- it's just the tone of it. It's very melancholy. It's very romantic and melancholy, even though it's this... It's 
you know, the prototypical cyberpunk film. It's actually a very romantic film. And and that's that's what I take away from it. It's that that sort of tarnished world that you're entering that is so beautiful and hideous at the same time that to me is what I enjoy about the movie. I certainly don't want actually watching it again recently, I was struck by the fact that it's really it's not a detective story. I mean it's a bounty hunter story. That's true, yeah. He's just hunting these people. Like there's no mystery. In fact, <laughs> It's, I mean, it's a, I guess it's a flaw that when Bryant, who's Deckard's boss, shows him the videos of the Nexus 6, I mean, he has, I don't know why they're giving them Voight comp tests, because they have videos true, they of know what that. they look like. That's not really, but I, I, the point being that I think it's not about uncovering a mystery at all. It's much more a story about what it means to be human and, um, uh, in fact, that's yeah. I mean, that really is that's the core of it. What does it mean to be human, and what does it mean to be alive? Yeah. And uh, and I guess Ridley Scott's brother had died shortly before he made the film. Um, Which that's, brother was this? He had. I, I don't a, know much about it. He had the third, third brother. Yeah, and he died. He if I hope I have this story straight, but he was doing Dune with De Laurentiis, and he dropped out of Dune because his brother died. And then he did Blade Runner. Uh-huh. So if that's a true story, I, it makes a lot of sense because the film is just, it's all about death. Yeah. And, um, and it's so sad in so many ways. So, uh, yeah, so I think that's, the, I think Blade Runner suffered from the misunderstanding that it was uh, an updated detective story because mm-hmm. it's, it's not, I mean, it is in terms of its milieu and the atmosphere and so on, but in terms of the plot, it really... It really isn't. Yeah, and I wonder if part of that is no longer operative thanks to the removal of the narration. I mean, that really right. brought it in line with every other noir, every other pulp story, uh, and gives you that wonderful anecdote about Harrison Ford just refusing to participate and, and being cranky, but it still works because the Harrison Ford we know now is cranky and short-tempered, <laughs> and that voiceover instantly plugs you into a type of Harrison Ford movie that it isn't. Right. Um, that it... It's not a, and coming a year after Raiders too. It's not an action film. It's got chases, but it's not. Your pulse never really elevates. That's not the kind of movie it is. Right. That uh, that Vangelis score at the very beginning is just telling you to sink back and 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 be passive in this experience. I remember what I actually remember the first time I saw it vividly, even though I was, I mean, I guess I was thirteen. Yeah, I would. It would probably be about the same age, right? And yeah, I, I was, yeah, I was still thirteen at that point in '82. Yeah, I saw it at the Willow on a double feature with Firefox. <laughs> wow, yeah, that's an interesting double bill. That was a Sunday. <laughs> I saw it. I just remember. I don't know why, but I remember it so vividly. I saw it. I think the Saturday after it it had opened, so it opened Friday. I saw it Saturday, a Saturday matinee, and the theater was full of teenage girls. Uh-huh. And when Harrison. Harrison Ford's name came up on the screen they all screamed <laughs> and boy were they disappointed <laughs> they were not happy after the movie was over because of course it was the first film he had I think it was the first film he had done since Raiders so everyone was and so, it was yeah. even though it was a science fiction film it you know it was sort of harkened back to that period and I think people were expecting sci-fi Raiders and it is definitely not no, that oh yeah um, but I, I and I saw I thought at uh there was a theater that doesn't exist anymore called the Imperial Six. Oh yeah, and I remember. So like it was a matinee, and I, I remember coming out of the film, 
and it was kind of rainy. Imperial Six was on Young Street, which is a big street in Toronto, for those who don't know. And it was always rainy out. And the Imperial Six had these weird, if I remember correctly, it had these like weird circular kind of windows or lights on it. And it kind of looked yeah, <laughs> like a yeah. set from Blade Runner. And I really felt like, in the best possible way, I'm still in the movie. That It had such an impact on me. And the everything that was going on outside the theater had that just a very similar quality. I'll never forget it. <laughs> but then I was shocked. I loved, I loved the movie when I saw it. But then I was shocked. It just... It was completely trashed. Yeah. Ever um, Jay Scott, who is a very important critic here, wrote a vicious <laughs> review of it, and yeah, I remember it's uh, still on the it's on the shelf behind you in one of his books, and I remember oh, really? just being struck by. It's not that he didn't like it; it's that he rejected it aggressively, hmm. as did a few other critics at the time. Just. Like nobody wanted it to be what it was. Everybody wanted it to be something else. Even me describing it just now as more, it's not that. But that's where I can format it. That's where I can put it in my head. Right. But it's You're so right. It's such an unexpected sort of film. And what's what struck me thinking about it just getting ready for this was that the two big sci-fi bombs, the films that were perceived as big failures in 1982 in the summer, right? There's Blade Runner and The Thing, and they're both about the same story. They're both about people trying to figure out what they are and who they are, right? and whether they're human or not. And now, you look back on them as classics, right? and and high watermarks, really, for that sort of storytelling, but then no one just, no one accepted them. You know, it's, I, I wonder if the film, if Blade Runner had been released at a different time the same year mm. if it wouldn't have done better I, because it came out the week after E.T. or just yeah. shortly or I don't know maybe not that close after that was E.T. Right it was, around it was then, very yeah. close that that tiny window of time was right. E.T. and The Thing and Blade Runner and Poltergeist and you have this fight between a commercial cinema right. a commercial genre cinema that is also deeply feeling based I guess mm. more than anything else both of those films are incredibly emotional rides and, and then you have Blade Runner and The Thing which are much more austere in their storytelling methods mm. and which people just didn't want I mean, yeah they were resoundingly rejected yeah and yeah and this is what's so amazing to me is I wonder and I don't know how you would ever quantify this but which films ended up being more influential mm-hmm. and I'd be I'd certainly be willing to set, say Blade Runner was or is as influential on the culture as E.T., and probably more so. Yeah, it definitely resulted in better imitations. Like E.T., you know, <laughs> E.T. is so singular that, you know, you get Mac and Me. You get, you get films that... Short circuit. Yeah, the films that are... They, they take the wrong uh, things away from the story. It's not the mm. visuals, it's not the emotional immersion, it's the pandering and the cute sidekicks and the, and the adorability. And then, or the, the other thing that came out of Poltergeist which was the Spielberg kids in danger kind of mm. thing that ran through I mean yes you get the Goonies and Back to the Future and uh, a couple of the other Amblin productions but then you also get everything else like Adventures in Babysitting and My Science Project and all that weird science stuff including weird science all those films that just ape the thing without actually understanding the thing and Blade Runner mm. you yeah you get a generation of filmmakers coming away scratching their chins and thinking well how can I make a movie about these big themes that still works on a narrative level yeah I think you're right and I think just and in the way it just influenced fashion and things outside of cinema like think you know, just the um, and design alone yeah design and 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 then just our own perception of 
our society the way things are headed. That film, I mean, it certainly wasn't the first one to do it, but it definitely struck a chord in terms of um, anticipating globalization and yeah. anticipating climate change and and presenting a very stark picture of what the future might be. Yeah. I was trying to think about this. Is this the first movie that takes the concept of an off-world colony seriously, that people are leaving Earth? I mean, there are, there are Twilight Zone episodes where the world is going to end, right. but those are much more immediate. This one has that sort of sense of a slow decline that th- by I this point... So. I think you're probably right. Yeah, because there's Total Recall and there's a bunch of other stuff, but those are all subsequent. And not. also based on Philip K. Dick. That's true. That's uh, The pessimism is definitely one you can feel. For sure. It's inter- I reread the book. I read the book like when I was a teenager, and then I reread it, I'm going to guess, at least five years ago. Mm-hmm. And then I read the Wikipedia synopsis of it before I came here and realized I remembered nothing <laughs> from the book. But the book's really great. Yeah. It's a really, it's a wonderfully, it's just a, it's just a much, but, it, but it's very, um, uh, I mean, it's much more satirical. I would love to see the Terry Gilliam version of this oh, as yeah. well, because it, it, it's much more screwball and satirical and um, manic than, than the movie is. Um, uh but all of that stuff is there. The off-world colonies is there. The environmental um, uh, degradation of the earth and um, and mass um, extinctions. All of that's very deep, deeply part of the book. It's it's. I'm fascinated by it, the whole adaptation process in general, mm-hmm. and and Blade Runner in particular because I feel like the book and the film are very very different on. In many, many ways, yeah. and, and yet, it's actually a great adaptation, and they feel like they're of the same thing, and yet, very, very different. But, for instance, the um, the replicants in the book are—they're actually not empathetic. That's the whole point. They represent something else entirely. In the in the film, they're probably the most human characters yeah. in the movie, but um, aside from Deckard, uh, but in the book, they're they're not they have no empathy that's why they have an empathy test for them so it it, it's doing or it's interpreting certain um the film is interpreting certain aspects of the book very differently than i think they were intended but at the end of the day they do feel like they're they meet again yeah dovetails in a way dovetails yeah yeah, it's a really. I, I haven't read the book in decades, most likely. I think I, I picked it up when the. I mean, I still probably have the right. novelization cover version that is the original short <laughs> novel. But um, I, I think the last time I, I had a, a run on Philip K. Dick, I read that. So it would have been maybe, I don't know, before Paycheck came out. Anyway, but right. that was, um, that was, the last time I really thought about it. And it does. It reads like a feverish version of the movie but the spirit of the film is the spirit of the book somehow you're absolutely right it's it's an inquiry like it it wants to know more both book and film are consumed with the idea of understanding this Mm. thing this this circumstance it's not even the replicants themselves it's the Mm. the 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 chain reaction that led to them uh and and i think with dick he's trying to unpack how we could get there and with deckard it's about with with scott with fancher the movie is about someone trying to figure out what happens next and what it means that these guys are here as mm. opposed to how did the the world become so corrupted and cynical that this is what we ended up doing. 
I think that's a really good observation. Why, thank you. But the, uh, <laughs> and, no, this, and then the film, you were saying that the, in the movie they're much more empathetic. It's, I think it's impossible to make a slave narrative, which is ultimately where right. they come from, and not side with the slaves right. on some level for right. a filmmaker because once you cast them and work with the actors, you see them right. and it's a thing that the book can't do or the book doesn't have to do right? because they're abstracted by text. Right. And the minute you have to figure out, have, you actually have to confront the fact that you are making people move around in the frame. And I'm sure this has happened yeah. for you uh, with stuff that's not human or supernatural or extra normal. You're dealing with a thing like nothing. How do you build nothing? Because you have to tell that story with minimal resources, but also where nothing is a resource, where, where the lack of things is a resource. But, but the idea for Scott, I, I can only imagine what it must have been like realizing that you're building the wardrobe and the, the makeup and the hair for people who have never had any attention paid to them mm. because they're just workers mm. Uh, mm. and created to do this. And that completely changes the way the film's perspective sits. Yeah, I, no, I, I think you're, I that think that's absolutely way. right. That it, was a long way of going there. Uh, no, but I think, I think that is right. I think it's a fun, there's a funny, trend these days to be have ultra faithful adaptations of very popular books yeah and and it's considered sacrilege to change anything and i i think that's really wrong-headed because at the end of the day it's you could have a letter perfect translation of something like stephen king's miniseries based on the shining and completely miss the point of the book right yeah and uh you know I, I actually find the going back to The Shining again for some reason those two films I guess are linked um, in a number of ways but uh, but uh, but I also feel like The Shining I haven't read the book since I was a kid but I feel like The Shining departs from the book radically but it, again dovetails comes back to the same place and is is in some ways in essence like very very faithful to the book yeah well Kubrick gets the existential horror at the heart of the book which is being locked in a space with something that wants to hurt you right even though you're the thing that is trying to hurt people right it's yeah it's amazing because The Shining is an externalized observational story of Jack Torrance and the book is basically in his head the whole time right but we still end up in the same place it's just kind of put off on other characters and and recontextualized in a way that lets that story play as a movie but book you're right books aren't movies you have to be different you have to at least understand what's different about the medium as you tell your story yeah i think so it's a very it's an interesting in other words to be faithful to something you have i think not always but frequently you have to be unfaithful yeah then yeah. and that and or you that have to be willing to be at least or you have to be willing to yeah and i'm sure that i think that's part of blade runner's success and that was also struck when I was rereading the Wikipedia synopsis because <laughs> I again totally forgot all of this that it being a Philip K. Dick book it obsesses about whether Rick Deckard is a replicant or not right so uh, I don't think anybody or very few people I want to say anybody very few people thought about that initially when they watched the movie in 1982 yeah no did I don't think it was really brought up but then when the first director's cut came out it was a deal because the inter- really Scott introduced this whole idea of the unicorn yeah. and, oh no he made it explicit and then there was a furor about there was a, a rebellion against yeah. that idea like how dare they you know of course he's Rick Decker is a human because people identified with Harrison Ford and thought that was it. I think a lot of people maybe myself to some degree felt oh well that's a very tacked on idea 
but it's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's a big part of the book. There's a whole... Deckard meets a police station full of what he thinks are policemen all turn out to be replicants, and then they begin to question whether he's a replicant, and it becomes an ongoing obsession, and then the whole book ends with him discovering this frog, and then it's revealed to actually be a robotic frog. So... It's constantly flip-flopping. and Anyway, it's just interesting to me that that was in the DNA of the novel to begin with and not something that was added later. Yeah, and there's that line that Gaff has too, you've done a man's job, which I think is supposed to be future slang, but just sounds like he's talking to someone who isn't a man. It's, right. it's just one of those choices. There's so many choices that, that are ambiguous at best mm. and misleading at worst mm. while you're watching it. I mean, and it takes... I would say five or six viewings to pick them all up just because after a while you have nothing else to do but listen. You know, Mm -hmm. you stop looking and you start listening to how people are talking and what they're saying. And there's all this stuff that's in the film that feels like it's supposed to create a larger universe outside of the frame. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the uh, they call you Mr. Nighttime, they call you Blade Runner. No one calls them those things, Mm -hmm. ever. Mm -hmm. It never comes up. Yeah, right. Is someone... And then you start wondering, is somebody reinforcing a false memory that's been planted? I mean, if if he's a Nexus 6, he would have to be a Nexus Mm -hmm. 6. Why is he old? Why is he not good at things? I think that's the best argument against Deckard being a replicant, is he's terrible at his job. (laughs) Yeah. I, I think there's a, there's an internal logic that would be hard to uh, come to terms with if he mm. is a replicant because th- that obviously means Tyrell knows he's a replicant. So what is Tyrell's plan in having a replicant yeah. impose an empathy test? It just I think there's there's an internal logic that maybe you could justify, but it'd be hard to to uh, play that game. Yeah, um, and it doesn't. Yeah, but it, I, does, I it, doesn't it doesn't even matter. I don't think it, it it just doesn't matter. I li- I like that there's ambiguity. I would. I, I think I would chafe against the idea of anything definitive being said. It's just nice that it's a question. Yeah. Well, and we're do, we're discussing this in a year where Alien Covenant came out, and we are reminded that Ridley right. Scott is very insistent as a filmmaker. Like he's the guy who needs you to understand what he meant. Right. And to the point now where he's made two prequels because he felt people weren't asking enough questions about the space jockey <laughs> and Alien. I mean, I love that. I love that no one is asking him why that's a a problem. It's just become, you know, well, he and I said this when Prometheus came out. People had questions. No, no one did. And that's why you're upset about it. Uh, and then he was he was openly saying that when Covenant came out. He said, well, I want to expand the mythology and, and I want people to understand where these things came from. So the whole point of Alien, uh, which is a masterpiece, is that it doesn't matter. We yeah. find them. And then there's no time to worry because there are things trying to kill you all the time. And it's terrifying and you're trapped in space with them. Uh, Blade Runner, whether Deckard is a replicant or not, I mean, I've heard alternate explanations that the kicker bounced off Ford's Mm -hmm. eyes mistakenly and they liked it and they kept it, or they just really didn't care and they thought it was a cool new trick to use with all the actors and they they didn't use it. You don't see it in any of Walsh's eyes because they just never got the right take. Right. And and so much of it has been stitched together after the fact that to create a definitive argument for anything, as you say, is frustrating and probably unnecessary. (laughs) But then... Ten years later, to have him come around and say, well, you people didn't notice this. I mean, obviously, I had to put the unicorn dream in. <laughs> it's just, it's stunning. And he's, I'm sure he's changed his story since, because, you know, he and Lucas are just constantly rewriting their own histories and assuming people will buy them. It's an interest, it is an interesting thing. I thought about, because they're very influential to me, I thought mm-hmm. about both of them in that context and, you know, having taken their 
kind of masterpieces and then created prequels to them. Yeah, yeah. One thing that did occur to me, sorry, related to that, Please. is that I feel like when Ridley Scott made Blade Runner, it was such, this is just my interpretation, it was such a traumatic experience that it, it broke him. Okay. And, he, ne- and there, he had a quality that he lost when he made that film, after he made that film. Right. Because it's a strange, the movie's strange. It's just, it just is weird. The performances are weird. Things that, the way people interact and behave, is, it's weird. But in a really interesting way. And yeah, I think yeah. that's also partly why it feels kind of like, authentically like, why we're, we're looking into the future. Because it feels exotic. It doesn't feel like right now. There's just, there's just um, nuance to the behavior of the characters and the way things move. And, anyway, the way people move and so on. It's just odd. Consciously or not, I don't know whether that was conscious or not on his part, but I feel like after that film, he desperately wanted to be accepted, and he Americanized himself, mm-hmm. and in and probably maybe had to just to like be a working filmmaker, and not go back to doing commercials, and so I don't think he ever made a film that I think he's made great movies since, and I think he's a great director, but I don't think he ever made another movie that was as interesting. It's yeah. it, there's just a and it's a subtle thing like it's just a quality I think he it, I think it was beaten out of him I think when he made that film people really didn't get it and and then the, I know there was um, a lot of com- political complexity within the group of producers involved and like terrible he was really treated badly mm-hmm. and and then the film was chopped up and all you know Typical story. Oh, then the financial failure also. And then and then it strike and then it bombed. Yeah. It bombed hugely and and got terrible reviews. So I I think he was just damaged after that. And I don't think he ever. I think it changed him. I don't say he didn't yeah. recover, but it it changed him. Well, his films are increasingly after that. Yeah, they're more stylistic, but they're also more generic at the same time. Like like Legend mm-hmm. is the ultimate unicorn movie, and Black Rain is the ultimate motorcycles and samurais movie. And, Thelma Louise has a great script, which sort of... I mean, he's mm. never better than his screenplay, I, I find, as a filmmaker, um, which is really frustrating because... Mm. Uh, and there's a moment in Exodus, Gods, and Kings that shows you that there could have been a much, much better oh, film right. in there, but he just doesn't pursue it. And then it turns into this large CG epic, which is a thing that he wants to do, that that's what he's doing right now, and just never mind, and never mind the other things, the other considerations... Um, and that happens over and over in his films. I'm, and even something like Someone to Watch Over Me, which is mm-hmm. a, this gorgeous-looking, mm. utterly predictable mm. thriller, which kind of came a little too early for the erotic thriller wave mm. of Fatal Attraction, but also came too late for a movie where Tom Berenger is in a Ridley Scott film running around expensive sets. Like, it just isn't mm. anything, mm. but it's polished and, and there's so much beehive smoke that you're probably going to get... <laughs> someone's going to get sick. But, but yeah, there's no, there's no animating principle to a lot of his films. They're just tableau. You, you get the sense that... You mentioned Gilliam earlier. He's somebody I, I deeply adore as a filmmaker and as a person. But I know he makes movies because he wants to play in those worlds. He wants to get in there and just be on the set and right. be part of that universe. With Ridley Scott, he wants to build the set and then just take pictures of it. There's no activation. There's no participation. <sighs> I don't feel, you know, to be honest, I haven't seen enough of the recent films to really intelligently comment on oh, it. Oh, take my word for it. <laughs> but I do think he has themes that he's, I think he's very interested, or I take it from what I, you know, his movies, that he's very interested in history and civilizations. 
and I think there's I think you can put him in that category of filmmaker whose work is even though it's very eclectic in terms of the genres there's he does have thematic commonality between the movies sure um, but but not like Terry Gilliam I, Terry Gilliam is such a and I, I, I spent some time with him too and I remember he used to make fun of Ridley Scott <laughs> <laughs> I think a little bit because he was jealous, but he would call him, oh, Sir Ridley. <laughs> I thought I was, I was amazed. I was like, you're Terry Gilliam. How can you be jealous of Ridley Scott? Anyway. Uh, but there, but it's interesting you brought that up, the comparison, because I think of 1984, not 1984, I want to say, Brazil. Right. Sorry, I no was thinking about, or listening to a podcast about the... Um, Michael Radford, 1984. Yeah, I thought you meant the Apple commercial. Uh, but there's the Apple commercial. But what, it's so interesting. Yeah, so, but Brazil, I don't want to say it's an antecedent of Blade Runner, but it's obviously related mm-hmm. because it does present a kind of retro future vision and a, a, a dystopic, um, totalitarian type society. Uh, so there's this link. And, and actually, it's interesting you brought up the very famous Apple commercial that Ridley Scott directed, which is a comment on, or a riff on 19, Orwell's 1984. And then there was, yeah, the Michael... Uh, the Radford production. Radford, right? Yeah, I think so. Michael Radford. Michael Radford, 1984, which is amazing, with John Hurt. And which also is kind of related to those movies as well. So it was in the... I think something <laughs> relates to those filmmakers. They're also all based in Britain. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then there was just something in the air, maybe it was Thatcherism or Reaganism, that really was making people think about a totalitarian society. Yeah. And um, although the exception in Blade Runner is that the totalitarianism is apparently just marketing based. Like there's right. No government. There's no. Yeah, you don't sense, sense of, of that. No. Of a of an oppressive structure. It's just the advertising has won, which is kind of also incredibly prescient because that's right. basically how it works now. Right. Yes. As we know very well now that totalitarianism and totalitarianism yeah. and capitalism uh, work hand in hand. Yeah, they come through it comes through the media and yeah. the and the constant assault of um, off world colony ads and, and products, that giant Coca Cola spot right. that that was so breathtaking then. Now I mean those billboards are real, right? They, they those exist. <laughs> and so are the three D ones are coming in soon too. Yeah. Um, yeah uh, uh, where is I going to go with this? Uh, yeah, I guess Blade Runner, I mean, it would have taken... I think 2001 was the first that I know of science fiction film that took the notion of brands in the future. Right. So you had, you know, Pan Am, Pan Am. spaceships and so on. But then Blade Runner really did take it to another level where you see how advertising has evolved into the future. And, um, uh, and it's significant that... There's a very significant line in the film where Rachel says I'm not in the business I am the business and and how humans or manufactured humans are commodities so yeah it, that movie it just hasn't aged <laughs> it is like you, it could come out in fact I'm sure that if it had never existed and it were released this year it would be a hit yeah it I'm, just it was just ahead of its clearly ahead of its time yeah it just it's, it's definitely improved with age it took so long to resonate it's like a what do they call those? It's not a seismic wave. It's the thing where, well, it's like light from space. It's a, a dying star that bursts out and takes mm. 100,000 years to get to Earth. Or, or, um, oh, no, I'm trying to think of something like the butterfly effect, but with sound, that doesn't work. <laughs> but the, 
but yeah, the, the longevity of it has been incredible because people are still quoting it. People are still, people are excited about a new one, which again, mm-hmm. yes, everything is coming back now and it's exhausting. But the idea that a Blade Runner sequel would be not just welcome, but feverishly anticipated, that really surprised me. I, I can never tell what people are going to get excited about, but the idea that there's more story to be told specifically and with Harrison Ford, with mm-hmm. the Deckard participating, because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. that would seem to answer a couple of questions. Right. But, I mean, I'm avoiding everything. I haven't seen the trailers. I'm avoiding all... Mm. I, I basically asked Villeneuve when we talked about for Sicario, I guess. Um, I just had to ask, you know, like, what is there? What is there to do with Blade Runner? And I, I said, I, I didn't think there would be a point and just came right... I mean, I felt like right. I was comfortable enough to yeah. know each other well yeah. enough I could just ask him, what are you doing? And all he said was, I wouldn't have made it. I was going to turn it down and then I read Fancher's script and I'm in. And he won't tell me anything else, which mm. is how I want it, but it just... I I still don't know why... Why are we wholeheartedly excited over this rather than being cautiously optimistic you know, like people are right. all in for Blade Runner like it's going to correct a mistake <laughs> like this time we all get to like it oh I see and that's yeah, yeah it's a weird place to be <sighs> yeah I mean I think it's a I, I love the people involved with that film so I love Denny Villeneuve's work I like I know and worked with Michael Green who wrote the script or was one of the writers mm-hmm. who's very smart so I I'm really rooting for it um, having said that, yeah. that's a tough one because yeah, well the stakes are it, so high, right? The stakes are high, and because Blade Runner is so seminal, we'll never have, even though it was a failure, we'll never have the experience of seeing that for the first time again. Right. And so it, what I'm just praying for is that there's a great story to be told, and then that won't matter, right? Um, and I've seen, I have seen the trailer. I'm not going to comment on it. Uh, there's a lot of good stuff to be said about it. Okay. But I don't want to. Anyway, I don't want to say anything. I think I, I, my, my, I'm 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 not going to ha- formulate an opinion until I actually see the movie. Sure. Well, but this is. Uh, exactly but it's but it really has experience it again. No. For the first time, you just what you said a minute ago was really has sort of has hooked into my head. If you could release it now without any of the pretext, without any, not pretext, without foreknowledge, without familiarity, it would be a completely alien experience. Right. So, right, yeah. Can you do it again? It's an odd, I mean, it's just, it's just a hard thing to, to walk in those shoes, that's all. Yeah. Because it's so iconic. I mean, it was, the look of that film has been imitated in countless commercials and videos and movies. I mean, it really, it's like the road warrior. It's one of those things that, is one of the most imitated science fiction looks, designs, concepts ever. And and not just in science fiction, but in all kinds of things. Um, I, was going to, I, had a, I had a very clever point to make, but I've entirely was, forgotten. We can come back. <laughs> I can always... I, I, I'll sweeten and tighten, don't worry. I'm sure it wasn't clever. Oh, I know what I was going to segue to. Ghost in the Shell. Okay. Did you see yeah. that? Yes. Oh, the new one. The new one. Yes. Yeah, not the original one. So close. But I think that's... And I'm sorry, because I know there's so much work that goes into those kinds of things. And I think there is I think there is a lot of good stuff in there. And I, so I, I hate to be critical of someone else's work in this way. But 
that film illustrates why, in so many ways, why Blade Runner is so great. <laughs> because it tries to do the same thing and it really falls short. Yeah. There, there are good things in it, for sure. But, I mean, I just can't imagine making... Like, if you're making a sequel to Blade Runner, I guess it has to take place at night. Yeah. <laughs> I can't imagine a scene in Blade Runner in the daylight. It just wouldn't work. Yeah. It's really... It wouldn't work. The only daytime scenes really in the original are the ones that were used, that were built after the fact of the footage from The Shining. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it leads to a whole other discussion. Mm-hmm. But before we go to that, but I, I, I think Ghost in the Shell is an interesting... I mean, it's interesting on a number of levels. One, because... Obviously, it it's this sort of odd um, attempt to uh, take a really beautiful anime film and um, make it for a large, a wide commercial market, and it just doesn't work. Yeah, you just can't do it there there because because what makes Ghost in the Shell that uh, Mamoru Oshii film work is antithetical to commercial cinema. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you just can't do it. absolutely is. And then you take all that out, and then you're just left with like a completely generic action, sci-fi action thing that you've seen a thousand times before. Uh, and then they, they, I'm, they, they were paying close attention to Ghost in the Shell, but they're obviously paying close attention to Blade Runner and trying to kind of upgrade it. And it really didn't work. Like it didn't. The upgrade was a failure. The original was much, much, visually much more affecting and 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 well done. And and I think part of the problem for Ghost in the Shell is it takes place in daylight. Yeah. Like it just doesn't. It 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 had a very um, plasticky kind of cheap feel for that reason. And and I, I hate saying that because I feel like there's a lot of good work in it. But but we know it when we true. see it that post-production processing thing. I, I absolutely know what you mean. Yeah. Everything's a little gray, a little blue, and a little green, and it just doesn't need to be. And it reminds you that you're watching effects and you're watching totally. uh, something that's artificial. At night night always works better. Well, almost always, just because we're allowed to fill in the blanks. It feels totally. it feels more unreal. Uh, you know, all the way back to just what was I thinking of? Oh, cat people, Luton. I, right. Just the lack of anything is actually more interesting than seeing something beautiful, fully lit, and textured if it looks like a model or a makeup or an effect when you see it. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And, and even you know, like that said, I thought Johansson was really good. That was a great performance physically. Like she moves like a tank. It. You believe that she's not yeah. human. There's stuff in there that's interesting, but then the execution and then the larger thing with the whitewashing and, and the fact that there's no one Japanese there, that starts to get weird, except that there are and then there aren't, and it's just internal logic falls apart, and yeah, you just feel like every other choice was, if not wrong, then compromised. Yes. By the end of it, you're just watching a movie that you've seen a dozen times before. Yes. I really felt... I actually felt... And I know that, again, this isn't the case, and I'm sure it's the result of many cooks and studio politics but mm-hmm. it felt like something somebody wrote on the weekend yeah it felt like somebody was half asleep when they were writing it and i'm sure it wasn't the case i'm sure people worked very hard on that script yeah. but but there were a lot of writers and when you get to that point it yeah. has the same effect i mean i just saw the mummy and it's got seven writers two of whom are david kep and christopher McQuarrie. right and and it's just <laughs> and there's nothing there's nothing it's <laughs> You watch it and you think, oh, okay, nobody thought about this. There's just, or it was overthought to the point where every decision was made in, with the aim of making it simpler and more effective, and it just became nothing. It blends it out. 
it grinds it to paste. Uh, that is, and I promise you, that's exactly what it was. Yeah, we're living in such an interesting time. Have you been? Now we're going to complete tangent. But have you watched Twin Peaks? Uh, series, not all series? of it. No, I haven't caught up to it. Regardless of what you think about it, um, it is the work of one individual, and it that goes a long way. Right. And and films, I just the economics of films are such that movies are so expensive now that with very few exceptions no one individual is allowed to make them and it's just all becoming gray mush mm-hmm. and that and so when you watch a movie like Blade Runner you are even though that is a film that obviously had um, uh, uh, Hampton Fancher and David Peoples writing it and and Ridley Scott so it was, it was a collaboration but you feel a singular voice in that movie a very personal voice in that film it's yeah. so idiosyncratic. Um, just the sound design, I was, I was really taken with it. It was uh, I listened to it with headphones on <laughs> at fairly high volume, but it's, it, it just ha- it, it's very impressionistic, and it's um, quite you know it's really avant garde. It's it's it, it's actually um, astounding to me that 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 film was made the same year as E. T. Like I can't, and I love E. T. Mm-hmm. But it is. Of course, people didn't understand it. It's just operating on some other level entirely. I mean, it really is. It's it's an art film. It's not really a commercial piece of commercial cinema. It's yeah. There is nothing. There is nothing in commercial cinema that can accommodate us that moment where Deckard's blood spits back into the drink. There, <laughs> just that image is so beautiful and so singular. Yeah, that's the thing that nobody has imitated. That's the thing nobody has tried for. Although I think I did see a movie where someone did the exact same shot, right. and I just thought, "Oh fuck you!" you know, like, <laughs> I know where that's from. Stop it. I can't. I mean, some films are so deeply embedded in my consciousness or unconsciousness that I steal from them constantly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes consciously but mostly unconsciously because it's just I can't in fact I can't even judge the movies like I, I can't going back to The Shining I can't judge that film I love it so deeply but I have no it's too much a part of my life right. to have any kind of objective perspective on and Blade Runner is is really the same like the sounds in that the imagery the way things and the cut the way it's cut it's in the Vangelis music it's so deeply a part of uh, my adolescence, I guess, really, you know, that was a film I really, it kind of timed perfectly with, there's a very cynical view of the world and mm-hmm. it kind of timed perfectly with, I guess, where my mindset was at that moment. Um, and I'm sorry, I'm going off. No, no, no. This, this is what uh, the show's about. Nonlinear tracks. But the other thing that struck me about it was really, with very few exceptions, it's one of the only adult science fiction films that um where there's no no trace of pulp in it whatsoever i mean there's you know like pandering or yeah and nothing if it's a very um i mean it's quirky in some ways but it's very serious Mm -hmm. and it really uh it does it's not trying to entertain you i don't feel like at any any moment there's the filmmaker or the writer saying oh the audience will laugh at this right in fact, they almost feel like sometimes it's a conscious attempt to go the other way. I like to say, let's do this. They'll completely confuse them. Uh, it reminds me, it's a particular kind of flavor of science fiction that feels so European. And I know Ridley Scott was heavily influenced by heavy metal and by Moebius. And there's a very famous um, 
uh, Moebius comic written by Dan O'Bannon called um, The uh, The Long Tomorrow. Okay. Do you know this? No. I don't oh, know. okay. I, th- I think that's the name. Long Tomorrow. And it's it's Blade Runner. It's uh, Except it's not Philip K. Dick. And it's it's a... it The city, the design is absolute, And I'm sure consciously Ridley Scott borrowed from it. It is Blade Runner. And it's a... It's a policier kind of mystery in... Maybe it's New York or somewhere in the future. Like a multi-tiered city. It's a particularly uh, European vibe and i think the other film that comes to mind that has a similar quality is um uh, stalker the tarkovsky mm-hmm. movie that they're just are there are very few science fiction films that that have that flavor yeah it's truly unique that way i'm trying to think of any others i mean there's la jete i guess which is yeah. more experimental than the narrative even so it doesn't quite line up with it or um oh there's a there's a Renee film um, that's more in line with Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind than anything else. Oh, I know which one. Um, screened at TIFF a few years ago, and I, I saw it theatrically for the first time, and it's like, wow, this is actually serious-minded science fiction. Or Fahrenheit 451, the Truffaut version, but they're all right. still very clearly locked in the European mindset of, right. of a serious attempt right. to understand this literary thing. Right, they're deeply philosophical, and where nobody has a shred of humor... <laughs> yeah, a shred of a sense of humor, uh, and then into that, into the Blade Runner construction, you get, you inject Rutger Hauer, right. who is an incredibly alive performer in this movie in a way that I don't think he is in anything. Else. I mean, maybe mm. a handful of other movies, right? He could be that snappy, but this film just it idolizes him. It it's in love with him, which is again the thing you mm. can't do with the original Dick conception of the replicants as uninteresting and emotionless and, and machine people he's yeah. not that he's so clearly alive yeah that it changes the dynamic and it makes it makes Deckard look more like a replicant by comparison because he's very quiet and, and still right uh, and in a way that Ford really hadn't been up until that point and Howard is just so vivid yeah you know he's he's enjoying everything he's he even he smiles through his death it doesn't matter like he's still yeah. he's completely in the moment as an actor in a way that nobody else in the film is yeah and he's a superman like you feel like he's more evolved than a human yeah and uh he's the ubermensch he's yeah no, he and he's magnificent that the film is brilliantly cast i mean really perfect i perfectly cast i don't think there's yeah i can imagine anyone in any one of those other roles it's very strange to me that harrison ford almost disowned the movie and it really is you know one of his best performances there's no question yeah he has such a great quality and everyone's wardrobe is so great (laughs) and that's which is a very hard very hard thing to do in a science fiction film like even or in an 80s movie (laughs) you know it's it's very much a movie of its time but there's something utterly timeless about the wardrobe nothing looks remotely dated and Sean Young looks unbelievable in that yeah. film. I think for her, I mean, at least they've got the the ability to create new looks. Mm. Those clothes never existed before. They're not right. retro. They're just... Right. They're, they're retro in their elaborateness. You know, you think of the stuff Lauren Bacall wore in The mm. Big Sleep, but you're not really connecting eras with her. She is... Everybody else is wearing clothes that look like they've been either vintaged or repurposed or, mm. or 
scored to look older, but right. she just yeah, she's immaculate. The the clothing constructions are insanely busy and complicated, but her stillness serves them. Totally. Like Rachel can wear this stuff because she's not gonna shrug it off. It's it's she, worn. She has a qual- she moves in a certain way. There's this one I don't know if you remember it, but there's this one shot where she's being about to have the boy cough test as she's reaching for a cigarette mm. and she does this oh, thing. Oh, the swivel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She does this very... And it's really elegant and it's almost dance-like. It's quite... That's really interesting. Yeah, only the upper half of her body. Yeah. Moves. It's really interesting. The whole... It's a... I, I, I really love... Like, I know... I know, it's like Apocalypse Now. I, I, it's a film where the, I know critics were divided about it and even now... I just don't see what's wrong with it. <laughs> I just think it's great. It's all great. And I feel the same thing about Blade Runner. I mean, I don't... It really... It really it's, it was... Especially looking at it... I, I feel like every time I see it, I like it more. I've seen, Watching it uh, the other day, I was just really taken with how magnificent it is and how singular it is in terms of its... The way it deals with theme. Like, it really... I think that's what probably threw people a loop for a loop is that just it was so much about um, about what it means to be human and 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 about how we're only here for a limited amount of time and um, and you know what you don't really encounter that in a de- tr- traditional detective story yeah it's just its own thing and that's weird too because those films are always steeped in somebody dying and death and and right. chasing and and a ticking clock. The, the clock in Blade Runner is ticking so quietly mm. that, you know, we're, we're sort of surprised when it's finally re- revealed that Batty is done. Right. It doesn't feel like it because he was so vital. And just a second ago, jumping over buildings and everything, it, it seems wrong in a way that makes it instantly unconsciously human because, of course, it's wrong. It's never time. Right. And why he's not... You see, there's this weird neuromuscular thing that's going on throughout the movie with him, and he's right. twitching, and he's he he crucifies himself in order to keep focused, but he still looks amazing. Like you're not going, he's not. I mean, like my concern now is that someone will you know, digitally turn somebody into goo or something. They'll just fall apart when you reach the end of your. Right. I mean, I definitely remember. Oh, there's a couple of shows that have done that, you know, like just conceptually with their expiring of characters, but um, you don't get it here here it's actually tragic mm. to watch this perfect specimen finish right uh and and that's as good a metaphor for humanity as literally anything else ever yeah and so of course people keep coming back to it that tears and rain speech which doesn't make sense because it's not supposed to we aren't allowed to understand what he's referencing because right. he was there and we weren't right which is again the death of memory that's what happens when you go right. all the stuff is lost right um and then you see somebody like uh, like Daryl Hannah again, an incredible physical specimen uh, in the film, celebrated for her movement, mm. uh, dying spasmodically ugly. Mm. Right? Mm-hmm. She doesn't die well, and it's awful. Yeah. Or or what happens with Joanna Cassidy, uh, who, I mean, I don't think anybody can really anybody who wasn't there the first time through doesn't remember how jarring it was to watch that stuntman show. Oh, yeah. Because it, it was wrong. Like, right. You could see the body was wrong. It was obviously a man's build wearing women's clothing. But that actually worked at the time because it felt wrong, too. Like you were watching right. something go terribly wrong. Right. Yeah, yeah. Never... I, I noticed it, but it never troubled me. It's funny yeah. with these things. I, 
even what should be the bad choices support the story somehow. This is the magic of cinema and why I, I do feel like the temptation for people like George Lucas to go in and, you know, retool his films is so misguided because uh, I love the movies because of their flaws. Yeah. And, and you know, I don't think... I think when a film is truly great and it's kind of hit that note that is just so correct that even when you see the wires or the tape in the background that that in a way only makes like you know you love your husband or your wife because of their foibles sure yeah you know as much as the things that they do perfectly and and i i really feel like and you and you can't separate them as the thing that they're in, intrinsically combined to make this person you love the same thing with the movie so yeah no i i it that never felt wrong and and it was interesting, you know, thinking about. Of course, people were put off by the film because their last memory of Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones was shooting people in this glorious way that was exciting and thrilling and you know adventurous. And when he shoots anybody in this film, it is ugly. Yeah. And he feels really bad, <laughs> and we feel really badly. I mean, when he shoots Pris, he almost looks like he's vomiting. And you feel, you know, you feel that way. It's like he's, how it feels to, you know, really kill an animal is a horrible, ugly, brutal act. And it, uh, yeah, it's a very, it's a, it's an, uh, the film's very truthful. I guess that's, it feels like it's really um, captured something that's uh, uh, like any great work of art should, uh, you know, truthful to the human condition. And I, and I appreciate the fact that Deckard is a deeply flawed hero and that the replicants are, I mean, they're they're cruel as well. Yeah. I mean, Batty kills poor um, Sebastian, J.S. Mm. Sebastian, who is helping him, his sweet true. little guy. He murders him. Yeah. Oh, and Leon's uh, an asshole. And Leon's like, an he asshole. He really is not a good there's person. Nobody, there's nobody in the film that is... Except maybe Rachel, who you know is, she's is admirable, but yeah. she's a victim, and she's literally an innocent. And she's an innocent. She's yeah, completely unaware of anything, and, and has no agency in her own life. That's right. To the point where she doesn't even get, or in the original concept, well, not the original conception, but in the 1982 release, she doesn't even get to choose her own destiny mm. uh, because she goes off to live forever with a human person, right? Which then got retconned, right, in 92, uh, and then is now, I mean, just the, the fact that they cut that piece of footage and left it on the ambiguous closing of the elevator doors is fantastic. No, okay, so this, well, this is a good segue. So now, how do you feel about the original version versus the subsequent the, director's cut? The 82 theatrical, mm-hmm. the, the first version? I think, I think it's weird that the narration was never intentioned. Uh, uh, I think it's weird that it was conceived without narration because those long, long shots now seem weird without it. Even though... I know it wasn't originally designed. The narration does kind of work in 82. And, now, I might be wrong about this, but I think it, they did always intend to have narration. Oh, so just not... They had always the intended right. it, but they never... I just don't think they ever found... They literally never got the text that they want. They mm-hmm. were satisfied with. And they were probably, I'm surmising, compensating for issues that they were having with how the film tested and people's comprehension of it by overwriting the narration. But my understanding was that had always been... 
the plan that there would be this Chandler-esque narration. So then rather than re-record new narration or come up with something he wanted, he just lifts it out of 92. He just pulled it out. That's what I, I believe is the case. Okay. Like I, maybe, I hope I'm not wrong. Someone's going to... It does make sense. Well, I mean, there's that's Correct the beauty me. of Blade Runner. There are so many versions <laughs> that there is no right or wrong anymore. There's only what the final cut was then and what it is now and what it's going to be next, you know, next fall, I guess, when he decides for the DVD and Blu-ray release of Blade Runner 2049 and he wants to go back and do something else to it. <laughs> but it's... I, I don't know. I mean, I know I wasn't wholly satisfied in 82. And I was a kid. So I questioned my own responses. I mean, I, I always knew it was very, very slow and deeply in love with itself. But that's not a problem. It's marveling mm. at the world. It's not marveling at its invention. Mm. And the 92 version clarified a lot of the things that I was kind of picky about. But again, you're not seeing it for the first time. So right. any film you see a second time... I watched Life Force again last night. Right. <laughs> uh, just after The Mummy, realizing that it's the same story. Like, it really is. <laughs> and started thinking, if I'm going to start yelling about this on Twitter, I should really take another look at Life Force and be better informed. But it really is. I love Life Force. Life Force is... uh, You know what? It is exactly what I remember. But it doesn't feel as insane anymore because I'm used to it. The the breathlessness of it and the way that it just keeps... Talk about a film that was ahead of its time. Yeah, it just keeps adding new ideas and there's zombies and there's this and there's the... Let's go set the the entire second act is set in a mental hospital that we never revisit and it doesn't really matter and... Yeah. It just, it really is nuts, but it doesn't feel as crazy because I know the story and I know the, the pace and the tone. It's already internalized. Right. So coming back to Blade Runner, any repeat viewing is going to be about appreciating what you know is there rather than, oh, that's weird. You, know, you never mm. have that disconnect again. Mm. So in 92, when it came back and I saw it at the, in fact, where did they screen it for us? It was a TIFF, the 92 uh, restoration. And I saw it at, I want to say the... Elgin, maybe? Or the Sheraton? Mm. It was a press screening, but it was hastily organized by Warner. They just slapped it in a 10 a.m. slot, and we, we all saw it early. Um, just Either just before the festival or as the festival was starting. And it was completely the wrong atmosphere to see that movie in, because right. everything is so breathless, and you're seeing five films a day. But to start the film off, start the day off with the film was great, because it put you in that dream right. state right away. Right. And knowing the pace of it, I could just sit there and watch really watch and look for the things that were different and experience that and so that experience of the film is probably my single best one because I've never paid closer attention to it how interesting even the first time through right and so I think as a result I prefer the 92 cut but then the 97 or 98 version the sweetened version with the digital fixes for for, um, Joanna Cassidy's sequence and the sound mix is I think very different but in really subtle ways there's a there's a sense right. of tone and, right. and space that's different and the music echoes differently. That one is probably the one I've watched at home the most since right. VHS, right. since the old right. days. Right. But I still don't know if I have a favorite version. Probably the '92 Experience right. is my favorite one. But it's I don't an interesting know. Thing, isn't yeah, it? I don't know if it's an improvement. I can't tell. Like I, I do miss the narration. Having said that, I haven't heard it in a really long time. So if right. I heard it now, I probably I might cringe but i do i do miss it and i i even miss them driving away because i feel like the film's so oppressive in a good way but it's Mm -hmm. so you know you're just in darkness the whole film and then you you go out into the great wilderness the great you know light bright uh outdoors and and it's that just is a nice denouement like i don't i actually never had a 
I never had a problem with the. the I know it was a reshoot or something they shot, not a reshoot, but something they added on later. Yeah. I never really had a problem with that, and I, there's something cathartic about it. I guess for me, it was just the knowledge that they have flying cars that they can't hide. <laughs> That you, that, and not not in an ironic way, but I was just right. that I was expecting a spinner to come over the shop somehow, or just the the sense of the chase continuing. Whereas right. in the '92 cut, when the doors close, because I didn't know how they had resolved it at the time, you're thrown out of the film. Right, you're just pushed out. It's over. Right. Yeah, and it's jarring and weird, and and I think what I'm supposed to feel. Right, just because that race to the elevator, they look at each other, the doors slam closed, and boom, you're done. Right. Right. That I really like. And that I think yeah. that's why I'm resisting a sequel in my brain, because I don't want to know what happened next, and they're going to have to tell me. Right. Yes, this is a thorny thing. Yeah. I know. I. Uh, right? There's I, that conflict between I, I, having not, a perfect thing and then expanding, building an addition onto it. It's funny. We're in this time where people just want to know everything, and, you know, they want to build a. Blade Runner theme park, no doubt, after that. And sure. <laughs> oh, the Void Count test would be amazing. That's how you get to choose which part of the experience do you you have to take a test and then it decides which ride you get. You're just going to be lifting things. Sorry. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's interesting. But I do... I, I mean, I had the same issue and have the same issue with the Star Wars movies. I just, I just don't want to know. Yeah. I just I'm not I, first of all I don't really care and then whenever I find out what it is I'm disappointed or angry <laughs> it's funny there's a moment in The Force Awakens that I love that nobody else did which is uh, when you find out what Kylo Ren's name is just mm. when they, when Harrison Ford again you know the icon right. of his era calls him Ben I was sure it was going to be Anakin uh, and it wasn't and I'm like oh I got surprised that's actually <laughs> better it makes more sense because Leia would have named him and Leia was closer right. To like, she wouldn't want to name him for the father who murdered her mother and all that right. stuff, because she knew him. Right. She knew Darth Vader as right. Darth Vader. She never knew him as Anakin Skywalker. Right. So of course she wouldn't. But I thought that would be the big flourish of the ending to say that all of this has happened before and all this is happening again, and it's a generational story about family that can't solve their own problems. And having it be Ben was a moment where I realized, oh, I, that's right. I don't own this property. I can't make it do what I want it to. Right. Do. So. That's the experience that everybody gets all the time now because people are taking these sequels and properties and, and reconfiguring right. them. And it's, you know, I don't, you're right. I don't want the thing that I want to have any more to it than I like, right? I don't need it to do that. I like, I like movies that bleed out around the edges where you feel like there's more there, but I don't want to know what that more is. Yeah. <laughs> I no. really don't. I really don't. I mean, my Star Wars exception to that rule would be in Rogue One. I was very impressed by their explanation for why the rebels were able to, spoiler alert, uh, uh, penetrate the Death Star and destroy it. Like that was, which was, you mean they improved how the plans got to be. Yes, why work. why that flaw was built into the Death oh, Star? Oh, right, right, right. Yeah, that was great. That was that was actually oh, because that you know it always seemed like a terrible oversight on the part of the Empire that they would have this exhaust port that would give you access to the reactor in the center of the Death Star and you could destroy it with one photon torpedo. Yeah. But um, now that's been explained quite cleverly. Yeah. So that would be the one exception. But I, 
as a rule, yes, I just don't want to know. And I like open. I like endings where the character, like the end of The Graduate, like I really don't want the sequel to The Graduate. Please, please do not show me. And I know there was a book sequel, but yeah. I don't want to know what happened to those people because I know it'll only depress me. Right. Even if it's the ending you want it to be, then it's going to be mundane because you yeah. can imagine it. Let them just go away on the bus and we don't want to hear from them again. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but that does bring us to the final question, which is, you know, what of Blade Runner has influenced you or or uh, you've already kind of said it but is there anything of the film specifically that's made it into your own creative dna um there's just the blanketing effect that it's had which really probably has to do with my entire perception of reality <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but honestly i mean to me the movies that are the most uh successful are the ones that don't stop when I leave the theater. Literally, when I walk out of the movie theater, I feel like I'm still within the movie and the filmmaker's vision is so powerful that it skewed my own personal vision of the world. And I remember having that experience with Blade Runner and, and I'm sure that's sort of rippled through my entire life. Um, uh, I think aesthetically, it's really a perfect movie and um, it's something that I could only aspire to, and I've I made this obscure film a long time ago called Cipher, and there was a scene that takes place in this vault, and I, it was the my Blade Runner scene. It was my Ridley Scott Blade Runner uh, tribute scene because <laughs> I had a big fan in it, <laughs> lots of smoke. Uh, smoke fans is a thing with them. Uh, but I, uh, <sighs> But I really think it's it's the tone of the movie. The the film feels like a window into a world and um, a visual window and an oral window that is so powerful and immersive. And I've seen it so many times that it really has just infiltrated the way I look at movies mm-hmm. and the way I make films. And I, it, I believe that it is a high watermark. I don't think it has to be... the top 10 most aesthetically pleasing and powerful films ever made so in that regard um i know it's influenced me and uh i just hope one day i make a science fiction film that has that degree of depth and um and that kind of uh prescient impact yeah yeah where would you go like what what theme could even do you have any kind of sense of what would con- what would constitute a film that big for you? Like where your mind goes? Uh, uh well, my mind goes to some big places, <laughs> but those ones are really hard to get made. So I end up making movies in one room mostly. <laughs> but those, but they're influenced by Blade Runner too, and um, for sure. And I think that the the scale isn't uh, just the sets and the visual effects it's it's the scale of the ideas mm-hmm. and that actually Blade Runner it occurred to me watching it again it's not it's quite an intimate film there aren't a lot of for particularly for you know a detective story there aren't a lot of characters right there aren't even a lot of locations I mean there are a number but there aren't a tremendous amount and it's quite you know the the climax of the movie is just two guys in an apartment climbing onto a roof yeah. so you, that wouldn't fly today <laughs> like you would That's not true. end your big budget science fiction film that way 
in, in today's world. So that supersized kind of mentality isn't really at play in Blade Runner. And I, and I definitely subscribe to that and I, I'll never be permitted to work on that level anyway. <laughs> so I think that, um, uh, yeah, I think that's something I would continue to aspire to, but it's a tonal thing. I really, I really just like the, I mean, I made a, I guess my sort of overtly science fiction films, Cube and Splice, flirt, they're fairly, I mean, they're eclectic, I guess, but they, but there is some serious intent. (laughs) And like all great science fiction films, Blade Runner is fundamentally about the human condition. That's just it. Yeah. And, uh, and it's just a, you know, it's becoming hard to make science fiction films because reality is eclipsing all the popular science fiction notions that you know we grew up with. Mm-hmm. I mean, Blade Runner. We're kind of living in a Blade Runner world right now. Uh, we don't have. We don't, for some reason we still don't have flying cars. Although I know that's being worked on. Yeah. And uh, it's a really the challenge is to come up with the next iteration to actually look beyond that that vision. It, it's and I don't think it's an easy thing to do. I don't know that anyone has really done it. Yeah. Recently, I feel oddly. I feel like science fictions are science fiction films are becoming increasingly retro in terms of uh, being callbacks to other movies and dated science fiction concepts. There really hasn't been one, maybe since Inception, that I felt like I was seeing something that was new. Right. I feel like and Inception went out of its way to not be science fiction, to be contemporary right. and recognizable and. You know, steal its its imagery from other genres, even like you know, Bond films point. and things like that. Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think part of one of the one of the challenges with science fiction now is that uh, really technology is becoming invisible. Mm. I think that's the real future of technology is that you just won't see it. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. be. We're not going to be hardware obsessed in the future, so it's kind of dull. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> it's not particular. Yeah, you know, it's not particularly cinematic. Well, her, right? Spike Jones is. Yeah, film. that's the one. Or Return right. of Sunshine of the Spotless example. Mind, yeah. which is dealing with sci-fi concepts, but grounding them in mundane reality. Absolutely, and where her is a perfect example, where it's about the supercomputer, but you don't see anything. It's mm-hmm. just a voiceover, and it. Uh, yeah, actually, yeah, I liked her a lot. I think that's that is, if we are thinking about what the real future is, that's more where we're headed. And it's hard to give up on spaceships and flying cars because they're fun. Yeah. And you want them. I mean, maybe that we'll get that with uh, Valerian. That... Yeah, Valerian, you're going to get that in space. But it's, but it's... <laughs> you're going to get everything. But it's space opera. It's not related to humanity. Right. It's, and it's, yes, it's fantasy, I'm sure, as much as it is science fiction. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. Me too. Uh, nothing, I... wrong, nothing wrong with that. Yeah. Let's, let's have some flying cars. Yeah. Flying yeah, cars exactly. without guilt. <laughs> That's what I want. <laughs> when you think about Fifth Element, right? What that it was to yeah, obviously yeah. to Blade Runner, but no, again, and it was its own thing. It was very charming, but uh, yeah, Blade Runner got it right. It can't be it. My thanks to Vincenzo Natelli, who's currently working on a relaunch of Tremors for Sci-Fi. I have to admit, I'm awfully curious to see how that turns out. Until then, maybe you can catch up to Cube or Splice when you get the chance, and check out his lesser-known films, Cipher and Nothing, if you catch them kicking around anywhere. You can also find his most recent work in the first seasons of American Gods and Westworld arriving on Blu-ray and DVD October 17th and November 7th from Anchor Bay and HBO, respectively. 
You can find Vince on Twitter at Vincenzo underscore Natale, and you can find Blade Runner on Blu-ray, DVD, and 4K from Warner Home Entertainment in multiple configurations with some really impressive supplements. And it's also available on iTunes and Google Play, but come on, go big. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner, and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you want to leave a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts or whatever, that would be greatly appreciated. It's too bad more people don't do that. But then again, who does? Thanks for listening. I'm afraid you just too darn loud.